Hey everyone, Zach here with a really quick note before we get started. I just wanted to let you know that tickets are now available to the Author Life Summit taking place September 10th and 11th in beautiful Colorado Springs, Colorado. This conference is hosted by myself and Jay Thorne, and there are only 50 tickets total available. Yeah, 50. So you're going to want to jump on this now. We have great guest speakers, including Becca Syme, J.D. Barker, Mark Leslie Lefebvre, and so many more. So look for the link down in the show notes to purchase your ticket today, or you can visit theauthorlife.com slash summit 2022. Thanks and enjoy today's episode. I'm Zach Bohannon. I make my living telling stories, but I'm also a metalhead, retired drummer, avid gamer, and most importantly, a loving father to an awesome little girl. Join me each week as I sit down with a fellow parent and discuss balancing a creative life with family, careers, hobbies, and all the other things we love. This is the Creator Dad Podcast. Dana, so um, I know we were talking a little bit beforehand. You just got back from vacation. Indeed. It felt really, it was our first vacation that we took as just the three of us as our family in three years. So it oh, felt wow. really good. <laughs> yeah, I guess, I guess with, uh, with everything going on with COVID and everything, I guess that makes sense. Yeah. And it's like, you know, when you visit, we've gone on places to visit family and those sorts of things, which is, you know, a lot of fun, but it feels different when you're just going someplace purely for fun. Yeah. It, it's funny. I think that that's a lot of people's attitude right now where a lot of people are just really anxious to get out <laughs> and go on vacation. Cause like I'm, I've, you know, I've heard from a lot of people who are like running events and stuff like that, even that they're like having trouble selling tickets and all that. And it's, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that people are just like, I'm going to go on vacation this summer because I haven't been able to do that. Well, the events space is so in flux right now. I feel like yeah you know, we're in this weird position of, we might have a lot of zoom, like video fatigue, right? We don't want to sit at our computers and watch things anymore, but also going out to events, depending on your comfort level may not, may not feel really relaxing or may not feel good. And also we have, at least me personally, I don't know about you, Zach, like I feel the, the commitments, you know, we had a year where everything was wiped clean yeah, and there was no commitment. Like we were free every day in the house. Yeah. Um, but now I feel like we're getting, you know, the kiddos are in activities again. We're getting invited to birthday parties again. We're having like evening events again. And so I feel like a lot of us are, at least for me, I'm feeling a little bit like this is a lot. I kind of liked that quiet of the before time. So how can we balance that this, these other opportunities, these other social engagements, which are fun and lovely with also having that space and that quiet time at home. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, I totally, I totally get that. I'm, you know, I'm uh, for a long time, I've really been working on saying, and I've done a really good job about saying no to more things. And part of what I've been doing lately is I've been peeling that back even further. And I've been trying to um, say no to things like even so like if, if something is not like a week in front of me, I'm basically trying to say no to it because mm. I'm starting to realize that I'm, I've made commitments to things like 
few weeks out and then I get there and I'm just not as excited about it as I was at the time. And I just don't think that's fair to me or the other people involved, you know, you, you burdened future Zach with something. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And I've, I've been reading, um, I've been reading Tim Ferriss's tribe of mentors and that comes up a lot with all these people who he interviews, like a lot of them say that they're like, not even just saying no, but exactly what I was saying, like saying no to things that are in the future. So like, I think you just put it perfect. Like you're putting a burden on your future self. Um, and so I've been really working on that. And I think all that's kind of related in a lot of ways. And people were, you know, like you said, they have this time and now it's like, okay, it's time to put ourselves first a little bit, I guess, sort of thing. And so. Well, we, we got into habits when we were at home that some of them we want to give up. Like I'm, I'm good to give up the zoom happy hours and yeah. all of those things. Like that's yeah. fine for me to leave behind, but I'm not ready to give up the fact that, you know, I cooked dinner for my family every single night and we had dinner as a family every single night. And that felt really good because before, you know, you have kids, so, you know, like you're going to tennis lessons or swimming lessons, and then you're like running home and throwing a pizza in the oven and you're eating while also trying to get homework done. And it's all very chaotic. And so those sorts of things, I'm like, "Ah, I don't know that I want to commit to a lot of evening events where I'm like trying to get, you know, pasta in the pot while I'm talking to the babysitter and trying to change for an event and and doing all those things. I'm trying to slow down a lot more because it's as much as I love, I love going out and meet, I work with authors. I love going to author events. I love meeting other people in publishing. That's all really fun. But if it requires so many logistics, I don't want to do that anymore on a regular basis. Yeah. hundred percent. And I think, you know, one good thing I think quarantine and the pandemic did was kind of exactly what you're saying. It made people kind of peel back and really focus on what matters, you know? And like, I remember walking, I remember in the heart of quarantine, like walking around my neighborhood and I was so happy to see people outside planting gardens and like outside playing with their, like people I'd never seen outside before. And it was really refreshing to see people, you know, and there, there were your percentage of people too, who just like vegged out on Netflix or whatever as well. But like, I also know a lot of people who took that time to read up, learn a new skill, like do, you know, and, and a lot, and a lot of people have been able to exactly like you're saying about with dinner, you know, like keep, keep good habits going through this whole time that they, you know, stuff that they really found like, oh, this really matters. And I shouldn't have been ignoring this before. Exactly. For sure. Yeah. So, well, so, um, I want to, I want to get in and talk about some of the, some of the different things you do and stuff, but, um, why don't you take a moment and just kind of tell the audience like a little bit about you and like what you do with, uh, with K public, I hate that word. I can never say it right. All good. Publicity. <laughs> That's nothing to do with you. I just, that's a try. So we are a literary public relations agency. So we help authors reach more readers at the heart of it. I started the company in 2009 because I really, I was a freelance writer. I was a book critic. I really enjoyed telling people what to read. It's one of my favorite things um, to do. And so publicity was a natural transition. I'm a longtime freelancer, entrepreneur. I've always had that spirit. Both my parents are self-employed. So when I didn't want to work in publishing in New York, when I'm in Chicago, didn't want to move, So the only really option for me at the time was to either work at this, the one pub, the one big publisher in the Chicagoland area, which is actually out in the suburbs, 
I'm a city person, didn't want to go there (laughs) or start my own business. And so that's what I did. And I don't think I fully realized as I was doing it, how wonderful and how important to my well-being, my family's well-being, that having my own business, having my own business has played such a role. So I'm someone who um, I believe my teachers in my, my report cards often said I had issues with authority. Um, if I felt that there was a wrong, I couldn't let it go. And that leads to entrepreneurship. I didn't like when I looked at the ways publishers were promoting books or treating authors, there's a lot that I didn't like about it. And I wanted to find a better way. So I, we, a lot of the things we specialize in are what I'd call, you know, off, off the book page initiatives or like different sorts of marketing efforts that the publishers aren't doing. So if your in-house person is, you know, doing the usual media outreach, helping, you know, doing book promotions on Goodreads, things like that. We want to find your audiences outside of that. We don't need to double up on efforts. And so I've been doing this since 2009. So that's like 13 years. Um, We have, we've grown a team. That was another thing that happened really quickly. Um, I had 30 clients and my first employee within a year, uh, which Again, I had to learn how to be a manager because obviously I was always a freelancer, a lone wolf, didn't really know how to manage people. Um, and then now that we have a, a son and my wife works in corporate where now that she's higher up the food chain, her flexibility is a little bit better, um, but she travels a lot for work. Um, obviously during the pandemic, we were homeschooling or virtual learning, whatever you want to call it. And having my own business was really crucial because I had the flexibility. I had the team members who could pick up slack. All of a sudden money wasn't the most important thing. And that's coming from a place of privilege to say that. Um, But at the time money wasn't the most important. It was time. Like I did not have time. If I'm going to be, he was in kindergarten, (laughs) kindergartners on zoom can, are not like (laughs) (laughs) self-sufficient. They need some assistance. Um, they know the technology, they just can't be trusted with it. And so I was homeschooling essentially for five, six hours a day and not, and that's, you can't work that much. Right. Um, I'm not going to be able to get up at four in the morning, do a full, you know, do a half day of work, homeschool, and then work into the wee hours of the night. It just wasn't, that's just not sustainable. And so it was really a blessing for us that I had that flexibility and my wife could continue to work at her job where things were, you know, shit was hitting the fan. And so she was able to like work those long hours and I could support our family by being there for him. That's awesome. Yeah. It's, uh, I, it sounds like, I think, and I think I remember when I was talking to you, I think our kids are about the same age because Haley was, uh, she was in kindergarten during the pandemic too. So it was, it was really, it was really interesting, like doing the, the zoom. I was actually, I gotta admit, I was actually really impressed with how well they did. I mean, and I mean, and Haley, uh, you know, she suffers with some ADHD and stuff like that too. And I, I was fairly impressed with how well they did. And like uh, more than that, hats off to teachers. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, no kidding. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's unbelievable. Um, what, what they had to go through. Well, but, uh, and I, th- I think too, like you mentioned, like there were some really lovely things about it. Like, I think that I loved, you know, we send our kids to school 
we don't see what happens. Like it was really great to see what they do in school. Cause as you, Haley's probably not a reliable narrator. My son is not a reliable <laughs> narrator. When he yeah. said, what do you do in school today? There's, there's no, <laughs> no, no form of accuracy there. So it was really great to see what they did every day. Um, and in many ways, he also has ADHD and he, in many ways, it was easier for him because there were way less distractions, right? Yeah. Like he's just on the computer. Um, he's not looking at what his friends are doing. His friends aren't poking him or whatever it is that kindergartners do. Um, so in some ways it was really lovely. I just think, I think that the kids, many of the young kids did okay. Uh, I, I think the parents who had the burden or the ones who had to work outside the home and figure that out. That was, I think we, we had it a lot harder. I made a joke. I think it must've been in like June of 2020 that our son was the only one who hasn't cried. (laughs) (laughs) We are, we are crying way more than, than he is. Um, they were really, I'm really impressed by them. It was a good, it was a good demonstration and resilience for these young kids. Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, something else you mentioned where I'm totally on the same page with you and it, and it does come, you know, there is some privilege attached to it for sure, but you know, I'm, I put way more emphasis on time than money, you know, and, and like owning my time is, is, is way, 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 way more important to me, you know? And that's, I tell authors that a lot. I'm like, you know, they'll come up and be like, how'd you start making the money where you could be full time? But like, I'm, I, I'm very minimalistic. Like I don't, I don't, um, you know, value material things very much. I mean, I'm th- like, there's very few things I need in my life to make me happy. <laughs> so, um, and also like I worked really hard to not be in debt, you know, from, from, and, and that was not something I was really taught, you know, like I was, I had to learn all that myself by reading and stuff, you know, cause it was not, I didn't grow up like, you know, don't depend on credit cards and, you know, like all that stuff. I mean, I had to learn to not, want to do that. But, um, but, but during that time, like you're saying, being able to work for myself and like have that time to be there for Haley and and all that. And, um, and even now, like, you know, we're start slowly getting back to the point where our kids are going to like, where we can go to the school and stuff. And it's like, I'm, I don't have to ask anybody to do that. I can just go and be there for my daughter, you know? And that's incredible. You're not going to get that back, right? Like you're not going to, you're going to remember the, the day that she had a presentation and you were there, you're going to remember the recitals. You're going to remember all those things. You're not going to remember what you did at work that day. No, the, the day that I realized I had quote unquote made it, I think I had been full time for maybe like a year or two. And there was a, at Haley's preschool or her daycare, there was like a donuts with dad morning thing. And I was one of four dads that showed up of a class of like 15 and these kids were crying and they were having to go to the office to call their dads. And I'm just like, man, this is awesome because I didn't, it was no question whether or not I was going to be show up to this. And to me, that was more important than any sort of financial marker or something like our, our sales number that I could hit. And I think that that's also what's been another silver lining that did come out of the pandemic is I think the way that we treat that we view work in this country, I think, I don't have to go on this tirade, but like, I think that (laughs) workers, if you are working for a company still, for those of you listening who have a day job, I do think workers have more leverage now, right? Like I think definitely if you're sick, right? We, we had this expectation that if you were sick, you just suck it up and go to work. And that's no longer, I think that is no longer the case that if people are sick, they're expected to stay home. In fact, they have to stay home. And so that's changed. But I also think that there was the, the publishing company I mentioned out in the burbs, 
had a no work from home policy until now. And I think that that is going to stick that people now can live in the city, not have to go spend, it's an hour commute out to the suburbs every day. And that's going to provide these opportunities for, you know, that you don't have to take a vacation day to go have donuts with your daughter for 15 minutes. Um, Instead, you can just go come back, work from home and, you know, not have to like take that PTO. And so I think that that is also something that's positively changing is that I think employers for better or for worse have to trust their employees more. We've been proven that we can work from home under crazy circumstances and that, I think a lot of people who didn't feel that they had the flexibility to work from home are not going to be afforded those opportunities. Yeah. And it's, it's a win-win because employees, I mean, study are are generally happier at home, you know, working at home. I think it was a, it was an adjustment for a lot of people. I had a lot of people come to me being like, man, I don't know how you do this. Like it takes way more discipline than I thought it was going to. And I'm like, yeah, it's hard, hard adjustment, but you know, people are genuinely happier at home and like companies are realizing, oh, we maybe don't have to pay for all this overhead of having a building, <laughs> which is expensive. You know, I'm, I'm surprised, honestly, that more companies haven't adapted to it, like at least in this area. Yeah, we'll see over time. I think that as people, I think there's people who, from the studies that I've read, people want flexibility. They don't want to work only from home. They don't want to work only at work. They want yeah. the choice. And so I think that we're going to see more as the, as employees come back to work in a partial basis, I think that's when the company's going to be like, all right, our floor is never full. So let's half it and give up half of it and let, you know, the employees hotel their desks or whatnot. So something else you mentioned earlier that I found, like you talked about having to learn how to be a manager, which is, um, which is definitely a thing, you know, for, for creatives and stuff. And, you know, I also think, you know, I know a lot of authors who want to uh, do like author services, you know, teach courses or whatever, but, you know, Jay Thorne, my business partner, well, you know, Jay, of course, but like Jay, um, you know, Jay was a teacher for 25 years and he's like, being a teacher is like, not everybody's a teacher, (laughs) you know? So like, um, what, what are some, you know, things you did, I guess, to like, you know, make that adjustment to start managing people? Yeah. So I think that the biggest, well, let's be frank. I had a lot of hires and fires and I don't, you know, if if there were glass door ratings on me, it probably wasn't good. And so I think (laughs) we, we learn by mistakes. We learn through, most of us learn through doing, frankly. Um, you can read, I read books, I talked to other people, but ultimately you have to learn through the doing and, and being really self-aware. So I think the biggest thing to, for being a good manager is I'm highly empathetic. So the empathy part wasn't hard for me, um, but keying into when I would be ups- like when I would feel uneasy or unsafe with an employee, um, what was actually happening. And so like, so one of the things was, I think in the beginning, I heavily micromanaged, which isn't a good thing, right? Like I don't need to be like, you don't need to actively be managing. I'd like to think of myself as more of a leader, not a manager. And what, what I noticed there was two things. One is we, I was micromanaging because we didn't have good systems in place for communication. So if I was able to see what they were doing without bothering them, I would feel safer and I wouldn't have to bother them and they would feel better. So we up, 
we use, you know, I, in the beginning we didn't have, I didn't have a project management system. Um, I didn't have like shared calendars. I didn't have any of those things in place. So putting in systems of communication, um, I always say now like record keeping is communication. And so when you keep accurate records of what you're doing, not in a like check, you know, not in a checkup or checking your homework kind of a thing, but like we had an, a good, ex, a good example was um, one of our employees had a health crisis, an unexpected health crisis. She was out for two weeks. Like, we're busy people. Like two weeks is a long time. Our entire team was able to just pick up all her stuff while she was gone because she had her task list. All the files were where they should be. There was messaging and like communication. She had not planned for that. It wasn't like, I'm going on vacation. I'm going to leave accurate notes. That was just the baseline. We were able to move all her stuff forward. So when she came back after two weeks, she didn't have like anything more to do. It wasn't like she was catching up other than some inbox stuff. She wasn't catching up on tasks. Everything had been done. And so that's the first piece is having a really good system for communication and system of record keeping that will help your employees feel more secure. It'll help you feel more secure. And then the other piece is that I noticed if I was checking people's like time, checking their availability, like you can see in Gchat, like if someone's active, when I found myself doing that, which again is micromanaging, I realized that that was because of two, one of two reasons. One is because they weren't making deadlines mm. or because like things weren't, going in the way that I wanted. The, the quality of their work was not good. So I'm trying to like spy on them and check on like where their time is going and all these things. That's a, like the, the micromanaging is a me problem. The deliverables and the not making deadlines is a them problem. Yeah. So rather than saying, rather than just being like, where were you at two o'clock? I, you know, you weren't online. I can say, I've noticed you're missing these deadlines. What's happening? I noticed that the work you're providing has lots of typos or lots of errors, what's happening and being open to listening to what's happening before jumping to assumptions, right? Because my assumption is, um, a, like, for example, like a great example is we had an um, email while I was, I was just got back from vacation and I came back like the Saturday I got back, my first email I looked at was like, we missed, the newsletter was supposed to go out and it didn't go out. And I'm like, all right, all right. And I couldn't find it. I didn't know if the newsletter good at went out. I didn't know what happened. So rather than assuming, oh, she dropped the ball. She missed this asking like, Hey, did this go out? What happened? And she said like, oh, it did go out here. It is. I don't know why Like, I, my, the login wasn't showing up for me, whatever it was. It did go out. I'll email him. So like, I think also just not assuming like we assume the worst and we assume that someone effed up, but really listening and coming from a place of like, what's going on. And if they respond that like, yeah, you know what? I did drop that ball. I did forget to do that. That's an opportunity to put fail safes in place and to like problem solved versus just like berating or blaming. Cause that's not productive, right? You want to create a system so that they, she, so that those mistakes don't happen in the future. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. It's, it's funny. I was having a conversation with a friend earlier today, actually, um, and they were dealing with some very like micromanagey things at their job. And, um, uh, it was, it's just, it's so many people, I mean, you're so right. Like a lot of managers and, and people just like to jump to assumptions and as a society, we don't do enough listening. 
Like we, um, you know, we, we jump to our own conclusions. We always want to like, you know, jump in and, and give our two cents. But sometimes you just have to sit back and listen and you might be really surprised at what you can learn, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And, and also letting people stay, like trusting your people. Like if the person is not a good fit, that's a different conversation. 100%. Right? But yeah. if you have like, I see this a lot with authors and their like virtual assistants, if they hire a VA is like, they need to, they're trying to like manage their VA and trying to handle them every step of the way. But if you hired them to do a job, let them do the job, like let them, and they may mess up. Like that was, I think the biggest heart, the hardest part for me was you got to let people make mistakes and, and they'll learn Like the impact of them making a mistake that affects the client is way different than them messing up and me catching it. And so giving, so our new employees, like the, when they first start, they're given activities that if they mess up, it's not going to be a huge thing. Like they're not given those like really like, I wouldn't say high risk because we're not performing brain surgery or anything, but like they're not given these really important jobs. They're given some room to mess up. And I tell them, I assume you're going to make mistakes. Like that is an assumption. The question is, do you learn from them? And do you grow if you keep making the same mistakes? It's a different problem. But I think a lot of people, like I tell people, we handle social media for a lot of our authors. Like, so we're posting on their behalf and I tell them there's going to be times where we make a mistake. It won't be horrible. Like we won't post something that was supposed to be on one author's account to another, but there might be a typo. We might forget, like the, the photo may have not uploaded, like there's going to be mistakes. And if you don't feel comfortable with those mistakes occasionally happening, then we shouldn't manage it because if you make the mistake, that's on you. But when you're hiring someone to do it, it feels different. And so I think that if you're an author who's hiring people, whether it's like a cover designer or a VA or a publicist or whomever you're hiring to support your books or any other creations you may have, it's really important to understand that people are fallible. Like there will be mistakes made but you have to watch it. Are the same mistakes being made over and over again, or are they improving? If the same mistakes are being made over and over again, then there's a problem with either your training, their internalizing of the information, your systems, like the fail safe. It might be you review everything for our social media. I have a little thing that I review it every week. We schedule for a week. I review it because the fact is, even if I, I write our newsletters, I have typos. So I always have someone review it before we send it out. Um, so having like a review process in place to reduce the amount of mistakes. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and like you were saying, I mean, everyone's going to make mistakes and um, you know, but part of that, part of that process, whether you're hiring a VA or you're a leader hiring an employee is like, you know, like if I hired a VA, I'm going to do all my due diligence up front to make sure I hire the right person so that when I do give them the job, like, I mean, you might have to help them a little bit in the beginning, but like, you got to trust them to do that job. And like, yeah, you could make a mistake in that process, not hire the right person. But then, like you said, you, you stand back and you say, okay, well, this is a, is this a problem with like, do I have the right system in place? Have I, have I taught them the right way? Or is this person just the wrong fit and I need to move on to somebody else, Yeah, you know, but like you have to trust. And that's part of being a manager. And that's, you know, I, I don't, are you familiar with, are you familiar at all with Enneagram? Yes. Yeah. So I'm a one. And so I really wish I had been more aware of that when I, cause my previous job, I managed 15 employees. I was like operations manager. And 
part of being part of the detriment of being a one is that you feel like, you know, the best way to do everything and you get frustrated when people don't do it that way. And I, but I've come to be very self-aware of that and understand like, dude, there's more than one way to do things and you don't have, cause it's really natural in that position to want to micromanage. And, um, and I feel like I probably did that a lot at my old job, but now I'm self-aware enough to where I step back and I'm like, no, that's not, that's not what you're supposed to do, you know? Well, and I think that it goes back to this idea of, you know, there's a big push obviously for diversity in hiring and the biggest push for that honest, the biggest benefit is diversity of thought. Yes. And so having what I really loved, and I never thought I would say this, like I'm highly introverted. I just love like going into my little hole and writing things and making things. So the idea that I love having a big team is, is a little surprising, honestly, but the reason I like it is because I like having different input, right? Like my input isn't the be all end all. And our, our team members make our company better and make the campaigns better and make our systems better. And what I love is that we have that, you know, everyone has that input and everyone's like, well, I know you find it this way is better. Here's why I think this other way is better. I'm like, oh, I'm not using it like that. I see what you're saying. Okay, go ahead and do it. Or maybe they don't do, we haven't, I'm very, I've gotten a lot more organized. I have, we have a wiki for K publicity, like a SOPs wiki. So there's a website where they can go and click and like find everything, all their standard operating procedures. And people comment in it and say, I actually think we need to be using Airtable for this, not Google Sheets, or we need to be naming files like this, not like this. And they can comment and then we can collaborate as a team, like what makes the most sense. And so I really like the the life of a solopreneur is lovely in many ways, but I think having other people on your team to brainstorm ideas, get different opinions, find out, finding out new, maybe better ways of doing things is so incredibly valuable. Uh, so I know earlier too, you said that you, you grew up with parents who were entrepreneurial. Like, do you, so, I mean, like, I guess I didn't grow up in that type of environment. You know, my dad was a hotel manager. He just retired finally. Um, you know, my mom was a stay at home mom for a long time and didn't get a job until I was in high school. Um, and, uh, but you know, I, I didn't grow up with any sort of, I kind of developed that on my own. And it was, um, like when I was in my twenties is when I kind of started to develop that, but like, I don't know, how do you like, what were maybe one or two ways that you felt like that set you? Cause clearly you knew you kind of had that mindset, but, and so like, how did coming from that help? So I think the biggest thing, I wouldn't call my parents entrepreneurs so much as just, I would call them like small business owners. Gotcha. Um, my yeah. mom's a therapist, so she does not have any employees. Um, and, you know, is very solopreneur, yeah. very solopreneur. Um, my father is an account, a tax accountant. Um, he has had one employee. I've learned a lot from watching him manage. He's not a great manager. So I can, and I've worked in his off. I worked in his office <laughs> many summers and I saw how, how I did not want to manage people. He only has one employee now, which I think is for the best. Um, and so I think the biggest thing was I saw the, like, oh, the thing that informed me really positively was the ownership they took over their work. They felt a lot of ownership to their patients, their clients, and giving that level of service. Like I always remember 
I mean, my dad's a tax accountant. He's also very slow. So like he would sleep at the office in April, right? Like going up to taxis, like I didn't see him. He had a couch in the office. He'd sleep. He'd take a little power nap and keep working. He always answered the phone. He didn't have caller ID. This is like days of answering machines, yeah, yeah. Or whatever. And so he would always answer the phone. He would never let it go to the machine. And this idea of for better or for worse, like this idea of like taking care of your clients, I think really stuck with me. Um, however, I also saw how he was consumed with work and how my mom, because of the types of patients she was talking with, you know, there was many, uh, afternoons where something would be canceled because she had a, you know, patient in crisis and would have to take a call or go see someone. Um, I saw how it consumed them in many ways. Um, my dad worked a lot and, I knew that that's not what I wanted. Like, I did not want to be burning the midnight oil. I did not want to have it be all consuming. When I was younger, I would sometimes get as a public. So when I was younger, I mean, I started the company when I was 24. And so I had a lot more spirit in me. <laughs> I didn't have any, you know, I wasn't married. I didn't have kids. And so I was doing most of the pitching and there was a high that you would get when like, I remember distinctly on a Friday night, my girl, then girlfriend, now wife is waiting for me in a restaurant. I'm sitting in the car talking to the Today Show because we're going to get our client on the Today Show, which is like dream amazing. Um, but I also didn't like, like, I can't sustain that. I don't like that. And so that, that was one of the things I also led me to building a team is that we have young folks on our team who love that they get such a high from, you know, that last minute, like phone call from, um, I remember, who was it? Mo Rocca called, or called one of our publicists <laughs> to say like, Oh, Hey, you represent this person. Can we get her on the show? I'm like, yes. Um, but like, I don't want to, that wasn't as I've gotten older and as my, as my you know, relationships and things have changed, that wasn't who I wanted to be. I didn't want to be the person who always answers the phone. And so I think that really, I saw how they were doing business and that was good for them, but that was something that informed me to do it a little differently. So what, like, so now what kind of, what are the ways you've set up some boundaries? Cause that can be really, really hard. Super hard. Um, so I have systems like, so there's some boundary systems in place. Um, one of, we have a work line, um, some of our team members like having an actual phone. I'm fine to just have it ring to my cell phone, um, but I put on office hours. So it does not ring before 8 a.m. and after 5 p.m. And it does not ring on the weekends. It will ding me that I have a voicemail. And so then I can listen to the voicemail and I can choose, is this worth calling back? Is this worth dealing with? Uh, is this worth like addressing? So that's one. Um, I think also my clients, we have a policy that we get back to everyone in 24 hours, 24 business hours on business days, yep. right? If you email me 4 PM on Friday, you'll get an email back by 4 PM on Monday. That is our policy. Our clients know that they know that if they email me at 9 AM, they might not get an email until the next day. Um, but I, and anyone who says that they have a problem with that, I said, we, <laughs> we favor quality responses, quality throw responses over speed. And when I tell them that they usually get on board. Um, and I always, so those are the, a couple of the policies that we've put in place as a company that 
we have 24 hours. I was actually thinking of extending it to 48 hours, but the publicists were like, no, please don't. Um, so I think that 24 hours and then also just setting up some boundaries about like when people can call me. Um, my clients, very few of my clients have their have my cell phone. So like, because if they call my cell phone, it will ring. Um, but I don't answer. So I also told people just be just because someone texts you doesn't mean you have to respond. So I, I think the biggest takeaway that I learned, I think it was it must be Barbara Powell, a literary agent who told me this. She said, you teach people how to treat you. Yep. And so I, if someone texts me on a Saturday night and I text them right back, I'm teaching them that I'm available. You're setting an expectation. I'm setting an expectation. Yeah. And that is, and that's something that I've learned to, to do, um, learn to like, say, you know, I'm not just because you, if you text me, that's fine. You can text. It's the same. I have the same boundary with my mother. You can text me as much as you want. Just don't expect me to answer everyone. Yeah. And so I think that it's, and I think you'd be surprised at how holding your boundaries, if you, if it, it's not something that you have to actively hold, it's just, it just is. Um, I'm Jewish and we're, we're observant, but not like we don't keep Shabbos, but like kind of, you know, we're not like super, super observant, yeah. but like we go to synagogue regularly. Like, so I'm, you know, Saturdays, like I'm not really available. Um, but what's interesting is that an Orthodox guy who's very observant said to me, he goes, I don't struggle every day with not eating pork. Like it's not a daily struggle. It just is, Yeah. you know, like it's just is. <laughs> and so people who say, Oh, it's so hard not to work on the weekends. It's just so hard to like not do stuff at night. It's just so hard. If you're a person who doesn't work on weekends, it just is. Yeah. And so I think that having, thinking about what you just want to be <laughs> and having that mentality, I think really helps. Um, and then you can be flexible in your boundaries. So for example, I will go to a conference over the weekend. Should I choose to, um, even if it takes place on Saturday, that's a choice that I'm making. Um, but I'm not going to be readily available every Saturday. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. It's, you know, I, I just setting those expectations, like uh, that uh, a lot of people just fail to do that. And, don't realize, yeah, you're going to have the people like you were saying who will buck back and then you have to tell them, Hey, we want to give you a quality response, but most people are just going to respect it. You know? I mean, um, I'm like, I was thinking about, um, do you know, Sasha black? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I was thinking about her and like, you will email and stuff back and forth. And, uh, she has it right in there in her email. I only check email on like, I think it's like Tuesdays and Thursdays. She has everything set up. So I'm like, okay, that's cool. You know, like she's got those expectations. And I was also thinking about a buddy of mine who, from my old job, we shared an office together and we would literally be in the middle of a conversation and he would go, oh, sorry, man, I got to answer his email because a client would just email him or text him. And he would, and I was always like, man, you were, you were training that customer that you were always readily available. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we, we live in this world where people don't want to slow down, but like, like you said, you don't have to answer text right away. You don't have to answer email right away. Yeah. Unless you're dealing with like organ transplants, like you yeah. really, that's, that's what I always say, you know, ultimately when people feel like it's such an emergency, I really break it down. And it's like, you're all making shit up for a living. Yeah. Like it's books. It's not necessarily an emergency. Yeah. If a client is like flying somewhere and misses a flight, going to miss an event, like sure. 
we can do that. But I also hire people who want to do that, right? I hire assistants who like are fine to do that last minute stuff or to be more flexible. Um, so I think it's also about having the boundaries that you want. And then if you do build out a team to build out a team, that's going to support that. Um, so as much as we like to have all of us have our own boundaries, um, we also do need a fail safe in place. So even when our marketing person was out of town and a client had an event, she tagged me and said, can you be on call for this event? Yep. Yes. It's just like this. It's more, I guess what you say, it's more conscious than automatic, right? So your colleague who was like picking up the phone on automatic, that's not great. If he's like, you know what, this client is really unhappy. I'm just going to make sure I get his calls right away. Then like, that's a conscious decision. Yeah. I mean, it usually was like someone who was uh, I worked for a company that sold musical instruments. And so uh, we were like a manufacturing distributor and he was one of the sales guys. And it was like, it was usually just someone like wanting to know stock on something. I'm like, dude, you don't have to, they don't need to know right this second. Most they likely. will live without their fender for an hour. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, um, but, but yeah, just setting up those expectations again, like most people will be, will be respectful of that. So, um, so like similarly, um, what I love asking everybody this question. So like, what is kind of a day to day look like for you? It's not as exciting as people think. I, I think when <laughs> there was a, that's the best show. though. That's that to me, that's the best. Like, yeah, th- that, that means you've kind of kept it as simple as possible. It really, I mean, it really is. It, ultimately I'm at my computer most of the day, right? Like that's, I think most of us are at our computer. So I would say for me as the CEO, um, I, my primary, I don't know if any, if you've read, um, are familiar with Mike McCallowitz. I'm not, no. So he, I, I love all his books. All his books are very specific and, and address one aspect of business. Um, and the book clockwork addresses that in theory, your business should run like clockwork, meaning it should be able to run in a 90 day period without you. It means you should be able to take a three month vacation, which to most of us sounds insane. Um, but one <laughs> of, one of those concepts that I, I really took away from that was he said, every employee, every person has what's called the queen bee rule. The queen bee rule is a queen bee. If the queen bee is in jeopardy, the entire hive dies. So what is the queen bee rule? What is the thing that if you don't do it, the entire business is in jeopardy. And so we all, each of our um, team members have their queen bee role. And then we have the company's queen bee role. And so mine is the business development. So my queen bee role is, you know, fielding incoming client inquiries, doing um, pitching to get new clients, writing the proposals, um, reading the books, creating the overall strategy. That's really my primary role. So I would say about half of my day is spent on calls, um, either with new clients, potential clients or clients, publishers, um, as well as things like, like new business, like new opportunities. So I had a call with a new reading app. They want to talk about partnering, um, talking about, um, I meet with, I meet with my mastermind, my entrepreneur mastermind group once a week. So I'd say half of each day is calls. I I mentioned I'm an introvert. I can't do a full day of meetings. I have three in me a day. (laughs) Sometimes four. But you know that, that's good. (laughs) Sometimes four if it's like our team meetings. And that's the, oh, and that's the other thing is I meet, I have, we have team meetings. um, So we have 
all team check-in at the beginning of the week and at the end of the week. And then I have check-ins with each of my direct reports um, once a week. So a lot of, so there's probably every, I talk to a team member or two every day. Um, and then the rest of the time is honestly, I create, I'm a content creator. And so I create a lot of contact. I write newsletters. Um, I have a writing community called your breakout book. And so I create trainings for them, articles for them, you know, respond to their messages, things like that. Um, I'll help create blog posts. I, I'm a little bit of a data geek. So I love like SEO playing with SEO and things. So I'll, you know, if I know that there's a keyword I want to rank for, I'll write a blog post to try to rank for that. Um, and so I would say on a good day, on a good day, half the day is content creation and half is new business inquiries or some sort of meetings. Um, the bad days are when I spend a lot of time in my inbox, a lot of time with my bookkeepers, a lot of time with like, I have, you know, going to us bank this afternoon to get like some forms filled out. Like it's the, those are the bad days that I yeah, don't like. Yeah. The non stuff you have side. to do, but like it's yeah, it's no fun when you have to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, but our public, I would say, like our for example, like our publicists spend the day pitching, right? They, I know how many emails they they send hundreds of emails a day. Wow, because <laughs> we have a lot of clients, so they spend their days creating media lists, pitching media contacts. Ideally, the media contacts are like, yes, we would like a book. Yes, we'd like to schedule an interview. Yes, we'll run a press release, whatever it is. So doing media relations is the majority of their day, as well as uh, client services. So, you know, talking to the clients about pitch angles, coaching them on their interviews, editing their, if they write an article, oftentimes it needs an edit. Um, and then our marketing team spends a lot of time helping our clients with their newsletters. So I, I see, <laughs> I have a lot of review eval, like review marketing calendar, review this. And so that means they are doing online audits. All of our clients get an online presence evaluation. They all get an email marketing calendar. Oftentimes that leads to us doing their email marketing, um, creating graphics, as well as uh, pitching influencers. So talking to people on bookstagram, book talk, booktube, um, our Jordan, our marketing person. If you find us on TikTok, that's Jordan. She spends time making TikTok videos, nice. <laughs> um, probably more than she should, but they're really clever and great. So I'm going to just let it ride. Um, and so, yeah, so I think that they're each of our team members, their days look quite different. And how many people are on your team? Eight. Okay. Awesome. Right on. That's, and we're that's hiring awesome. two more currently. Nice. So right we're on. in the final, I have to do, um, they're going to report to our marketing coordinator. And so she did the first round of interviews. She's picking her top three for each position. And then I'm doing those final interviews. So yeah, by May, we'll be up to 10. That's awesome. <laughs> that, <laughs> it's a, Hey, you know, but I mean, that, that, that's amazing though. And it's, it's great that you're, you're obviously, you know, um, a lot of people try to grow and scale fast and you've obviously like, you just are like, no, I need to grow now. And that you just have grown, you know, over time and, and just do it as you need to. So that's, that's awesome. I mean, I try to, the thing that changed, I think this is what changed this year. And this is what I've done things differently. I have bootstrapped everything, like everything, never took out a loan, never like did anything. That's awesome. Um, and so but what, so that led to like, there's exponential growth in the first year and we've been growing and growing and growing, but it's this, we, we reached to this point where we're all overworked and super stressed. 
And then I feel like financially comfortable to hire somebody. And then I hire someone, we're all good. And then we keep going. This 2021, because our, our newest team members um, just started in 2021. So they've just been here a year. And I they were the first people I hired ahead of demand. So they got like really good training. They had like, we had more systems in place. We weren't super, super overwhelmed. Oh, well, I guess my other team members might have been super, super overwhelmed, but like, so they came in um, and I hired them before I was like ready essentially. And then I realized, oh, within six months, we were already back to like operating at bandwidth. And so now um, luckily my contract, I have some who are contractors, they have a little bit more flexibility with their like how much they take on and how often I use them. But, um, but this, these two positions that we're hiring now are really an investment ahead of demand. So like, we are not burnt out yet. We're not at capacity yet. And I want to have even more time to, to train. And so that has been, that was like the big change was like having faith that it will be fine. Having fail safes, like going to the, the, my bank appointment is um, we're getting a line of credit, which I never had before just in case, right? Like doesn't yeah. you have to pay it if you don't use it, yeah. uh, but having that buffer. And so those are the things that now I'm trying to do differently of like, do it responsibly. Don't just like hire a bunch of people that you can maybe not pay, but also having faith that you are going to continue to grow at this rapid pace. And so it is in your best interest to invest in people now. So from an author level, I have like a couple questions I want to ask about that. So, um, uh, like for, I guess, first off, do you, um, do y'all work more with indie or traditional or is it like, does it matter or it does? So our full service campaigns, we only do uh, traditionally published authors. Um, okay. do you want me to go into that? You can. Yeah, for sure. yeah. Okay. So we have found, cause we, we've done indie books before we have found that the most effective marketing, the most effective way to push indie books is for an author to really build their own audience and their own following through marketing. There are limited opportunities for traditionally, for um, indie authors in the media, like podcasts, influencers, like they don't care. Like New York Times cares, you know, TV shows care. Um, And so there's fewer media opportunities. So that's one. Also the places people buy indie books are different, yep. right? So like if I'm reading a print newspaper, because I'm one of the weirdos that still does, <laughs> the likelihood that I'm, and I'm making general assumptions, but like the likelihood that I'm getting my books at a bookstore is pretty high. Yeah. As opposed to if I'm reading something online and then there's an Amazon link at the bottom, and I can do one click buy. That conversion is much more effective. So the media should, the, the, marketing and the publicity should reflect where people are getting their books. And so what we've found is that investing, our campaigns typically run $8,500 to $10,000. Investing in that for traditional media, we do everything, but like without the traditional media, it doesn't necessarily yield a return on that investment. What really earns a return on investment is online media, working with influencers, growing your email list, running Amazon ads, like doing all of those things. That's really what moves the indie books. And so what we've done for the indie authors is the membership community, the Your Breakout Book community. And what we talk about in there is really about sustainable 
audience growth. Because you can have like, let's say you are an indie author and you have like 2000 loyal readers. Well, you have a choice. You can either grow that readership or you can write 10 books a year for that audience and they'll buy ideally everything. Um, and that's how you increase your revenue. But most of us just want to write really good books. Doesn't always take a month. Like it takes like a longer period yeah. of time. And so instead you must continue to reach new readers and continue to grow your audience. Um, so with the membership community, the authors are we do a weekly or not weekly, a monthly roundtable discussion on a topic. There's a monthly live training. We'll have special guests talk to the community. Um, but it's really talking about how authors can grow their own audience. I will say that that community is a mix of traditional and indie. So yeah. traditional published, traditionally published authors who are like, either I don't can't afford the services or I have the time and I'm fine to do it myself because it's really just time. Um, they tend to opt for the membership community. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. No, I mean, everything you said makes sense. I mean, I, I love the analogy you made about like reading the newspaper and where you're more likely to buy books. I was, I was recently having this conversation about, um, uh, around like the web 3.0 and the NFT stuff and how I was like, you know, NFT is gangbusters and music. I think it's going to be big in video games and stuff. I just don't know if it's going to translate to books. <laughs> you know, we had a, two clients or a client as a writing duo um, who launched an NFT thing. They were um, fantasy, sci-fi fantasy writers. Mm -hmm. So they commissioned artists to make NFTs based on the art in their world. Yeah. That worked pretty well because like artists who had a following, like they were selling it was like a, like a cooperative almost, right? Like they had the like storefront with all the different, with like various different artists, different mediums, different types of art. Um, but yeah, I don't think that like, we're going to be buying an NFT for a book. Like I yeah. don't necessarily think that's happening. Yeah, which is, which is the bigger, you know, the, the JPEGs as people say is like the low hanging fruit, yep. but the, the bigger thing is when you get into what you just said about like books, like and when you get into like ownership and it's more like an investment and you know, like, I don't, it's been hard enough to get a, people to Kindle. <laughs> now they got a sideload an NFT book, you know, like, yeah, yeah. it's but, really, I think that people are the, the, I'm all for reading in different ways. Yeah. Like I'm all game for that. Like if you're reading on the Wattpad app, if you're reading on medium, if you're reading by listening to an audible book, like I'm all about reading in different mediums because we just want people to read. But I think when we have a limited amount of time and we have to know our, like, I think it's also about knowing our audiences. So like one great example was Joanna Penn told me, she was like, if your book isn't an audio, it doesn't exist for me. <laughs> I was like, what? She's like, I exclusively listen on audio. And guess whose book wasn't in audio? Mine. <laughs> I was like, okay, that's a problem because she's my target audience. Yeah. Like she would buy my book. Um, maybe, but like people like her would buy my book. And yeah, so for sure. that was when I decided I'm like, okay, I, I finally got the I talked to my publisher, I got the rights back. It took me a while to produce it, but like we got the book out in audio now. And so I think it's also just knowing where your readers get their books and what yeah. and if. And if those are your target readers, like if there's a big community of readers that only read print, do they read your genre of book? Is that something that they consume? It might be worth like doing a small print run and working on consignment with a bookstore. It might be worth doing an in-person event for those readers. So I think thinking about who your audience is and how they consume is really important, not just with media, um, but also with like the format that your book is taking. 
Yeah. I mean, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, I, a lot of, especially newer authors make the mistake of like not differentiating, uh, the um the audiobook listeners from book readers you can even go down even more and say you know people who read who buy their books on amazon that's not the same reader as people who are subscribed to kindle unlimited that's a di- even getting that granular with it and and you know going back to what you're saying earlier it's the stuff you talked about is a bit is a big reason why i am you know i'm about 35 books in in my indie career but like um, I'm really thinking about like pursuing getting an agent and doing the traditional publishing way. And I, I, some authors have asked me like, well, why are you doing, why would you want to do that? If you're already making a comfortable living, um, as an indie and you have an audience, it's like, well, cause I know I'm missing out on readers that I'm not going to get if I'm not, uh, in, in bookstores and, and going this other way. And like, I don't look at it as a either or thing. It's not like once I'm traditionally published, that's what I have to do the rest of my career. You can do both. And you're, and you're making even more of an argument because you're, you're, I've thought about this stuff, but not super deeply, but like, I'm also missing out on opportunities by not being traditionally published because there's more media opportunity there. Yeah. So my, so my question for people who, who's, my question for people who are like, do I do indie? Do I do traditional? First of all, yeah, like you said, you can do both, right? Like this book might be a traditional book. This might book might be an indie book. Like you don't have to, you can choose what's right, the right path for the book. The question is, is that when you go traditional, you're giving them a big chunk of money. You're not yeah. investing as much money, right? Like I had to invest on, you know, sound pro- audio producer, all those things. Yeah. Um, and my book was already like in print. So I had the editing and all that stuff already. And so the, I think that you have to think about like, you're, you're giving them, you're only going to get typically 15, let's say 15% of each sale. That's what you're going to receive. That's your hardcover book. You will get like a dollar 20 per book. That's how much you're going to make. So you need to sell a lot more to earn the same amount. Yeah. So for your books. So, so in my, so in my mind, so my, my book is a traditionally published book. In hindsight, I would have rather indie pubbed because the only people who bought that book are people from me, right? They were like, it was my community of people. When I would do speaking engagements, people would buy the book. When I would do webinars, people would buy the book. Everyone who bought the book, not everyone, but most people who bought the book did it because they've engaged with me in some way. So that means I could have probably made a lot more money had I indie pubbed. It would have been a huge pain in the butt. It would have like, you know, so all of that aside, um, because I was just selling to my audience, that is when you should indie pub in my mind. Or if you just don't want to handle everything else that you're willing to give the publisher a bigger cut. However, if you feel like there's your audience, but there's a broader audience out there, if you feel like this book has broader commercial appeal that it could reach, that it's going to reach people, not just because of you, but because of like everyone else because of like just the genre or just the type, you know, whatever it is, that's when you should think about traditionally publishing because ideally your publisher is going to help you reach a much broader audience. And that's where you have the investment. Yeah. By the way, uh, Dana's book is called your book, your brand. <laughs> you went Thank through you. all that and never said the name. <laughs> Come on. The, be a be- your be a book, better your brand, <laughs> the step-by-step guide to launching your book and boosting your sales recently available in audio. <laughs> it's an, so you just did the audio. The audio released 
uh, I think March 31st. Okay. So yeah, really, really. And, and you, you were able to, like you did, uh, publish, like you had the rights for the audio. Yeah. So my contract, um, again, if you're talking about traditionally publishing, thinking mm-hmm. about your contract, um, I negotiated my own contract because it was a smaller press. Um, so I could do that. Um, I asked for a sunset date. They wanted audio rights. I asked for a sunset date. So if they were unable to sell or produce the audio within two years, I would get the rights back. So I got the rights back. Um, and so if you are negotiating a contract, those are things to ask for. Um, I think the, the hardest part about, you don't necessarily need an agent to sell to a small press, um, but you need to know what to ask for, right? Are you giving them world's rights, world English rights, North American rights? Are you including, so like I gave them film rights. If someone produces the musical <laughs> and, the, and the theatrical <laughs> production rights, someone produces your book, your brand, the musical, like that's fine. Um, I don't get a cut of that anymore, but- um, That's going to be but- the next Hamilton- the next, uh, but asking for those sorts of things. So I also asked for um, what's called escalators, which has paid off is that if you sell X amount of books or earn X amount in royalties, your royalty rate goes up. Nice. And so that was, again, it's an investment, right? Like if a yeah. book does well, then I get more money. Like there's an investment there. It's little risk on the publisher's part. So those are things that you can ask for is if they want audio, you can ask for a sunset date. If they want film or foreign, you can ask for a sunset date. Um, and if you want, if they're not budging on the royalty rate, which they likely would not change the royalty rate, you could ask for escalators or you can ask for a bonus. Like some of our authors have contracts that say if she sells 10,000 copies in the first month, she gets a whatever K bonus. Nice. So right you can ask, ask for anything. They just might not give it to you, but yeah. Yeah. But I mean, like you're saying, ask, like n- read the contract or, or, or have someone involved who, you know, knows contract is like a, a contractual, an IP lawyer or whatever. And, um, but yeah, like if you don't ask, you're never going to get anything, yeah. you know, worst thing they're gonna do is say no. Yep. <laughs> and, they might, and, giving, and giving up some control, like there is yeah. a risk, right? So my, my brother, who's a lawyer took a look at the contract and he said, okay, well, you don't have final approval on the cover. So if they have a crummy cover, you have to live with that. I'm like, that's yeah. just industry standard. You don't get, that's not going to yeah. be a thing. Um, there was an indemnity clause and he's like, I would write this. Like there's things that he knew, but I'm like, but yep. this is industry standard. I'm not going to change that. There were some other things that we did ask for, but um, so the thing about the lawyer, if you have a lawyer look over it, they're going to be thinking just from a protective lens versus um the industry standard and like what's realistic like i don't realistically feel like i'm going to translate my book into french spanish whatever um so it doesn't matter as much to me if you're writing genre fiction that might be more important nice well before we get out of here i did want to ask you a question or two um about parenting so i mean you you mentioned i i did the math and so you, you, you said how old your son was, and you also mentioned like when you started your company. So you obviously were a business owner and were deep in by the time you became a parent. So, um, I don't know, like, what was maybe a, a big adjustment or two you had to make after becoming a parent with also running your own business? Yeah. Parenting build is a boundary in itself, isn't it? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Like builds yeah. a boundary. So like, you know, I could no longer work to the wee, I was never working to the wee hours of the night, but like when the, when the, we had an au pair for the first year, when she was off work, like I needed to be there 10 minutes before, um, to relieve her. Like there wasn't a just 
working until you're done. Whatever I got done in that day is what I got done. Yeah. Um, same is true now. Now he's in school. There's a bus. I can't just have him waiting at the bus stop by himself. Like I need to leave. Um, so there's a lot of boundaries that came um, with it. I'll also say it really, I wish everyone could just do this without having a kid. It's so much better. Um, however, when we're parents, like I said, we don't have the luxury of time or we have other people's times. So like Noah, when I wrote my book, um, our son was, oh math, like one years old, like yeah. in the, in the, in the months phase, whatever that was. Um, so I wrote his book. He had two naps at the time. That's how much I had to write two naps worth of writing. Um, I also had a really crazy deadline. I wrote that book in two months. <laughs> and wow. so it was, yeah, so it was insane. So I had to write. So you write a lot of words when you only have a, when there's a scarce amount of time. Yep. If people without kids could do this, this would be awesome. But I feel like we can only learn this when there's some, some external scarcity that comes up. 100%. Um, but, but for folks who work day jobs, they know this, right? Like there's a lot of our authors who are what they call lunch hour writers. They write on their lunch hour. That's what they have. Um, and so I, that was the biggest adjustment was like, I soon realized what, what could be kicked down, like what could be let go of. Um, and the funny thing is, is like, if every day you're not doing that one thing, it's probably not important. Yeah. Like it might not be important. Like if your business is going and your writing is going without it, you might just not need to do it. Um, so I think that was the biggest adjustment is all of a sudden you have a lot of constraints around time, a lot of time scarcity on different people's schedules. Um, so like now our vacations revolve around his school schedule. Um, and so I think that is, I think that was the biggest adjustment um, in becoming a parent. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people, when I tell them uh, there were uh, days when I had a full-time job that I wrote more and I do now. Yep. And I think it surprises people, but I'm like, those, those constraints, they, they do something mentally to you that, um, and it's hard to, it's hard to explain unless you've lived it and you've done it, you know, it's a scarcity mindset, right? It like it's, it's the reason all these people bought so much toilet paper, like in March of 2020, <laughs> yeah. when you think, when you're not sure if you're going to have it again, you, you strive and it's that um, Maslow's kind of like hierarchy of needs thing. Like this visceral thing happens where you need it. So if, if I knew this kid could wake up at any moment and if I got behind, I'd be behind on my deadline and miss my writing deadline. Like you write with a fury. And so I think that that's what it is, is this something that happens when there's a scarce amount of time and you know, you're going to run out. You invest, you're a lot more focused. You invest a lot more. You, fo you just go in and get a lot more accomplished. Absolutely. Well, that feels like a pretty good place for us to stop. Um, this has been, this has been a great conversation, Dana. I'm really glad that you, uh, came on. I know you're super busy. So you got your big, your growing team to manage. So I'm, I'm thankful you came on here, but, um, but, uh, before I let you tell people where they can find you, I will say that, uh, Dana is one of our speakers this year at the author life summit, um, which is going to be taking place September 10th and 11th in Colorado Springs, Colorado. So, uh, we have limited number of tickets available, so you can go to the authorlife.com slash summit 2022. Um, and we'll both be there along with some other great people, but, uh, but Dana, um, tell people where they can find you online, a anything you want to promote. 
Um, if you're interested in joining our savvy community of authors, um, go to yourbreakoutbook.com. There you'll find blog posts, um, blog posts, uh, my podcast, and ways to join the community. And if you're a traditionally published author wanting to hire us for PR services, you can go to kpublicity.com. That's K-A-Y-E. Um, and I hope to see you at Author Life Summit. I spoke to Jay and Zach's group last September, yep. and it was, they bring together an incredible group of speakers. I go to, well, in the before times, I went to a lot of conferences and a lot of times I would sit supporter authors, but I wouldn't really learn very much. I had a whole notebook worth of notes and not just notes, but things that we've implemented and that we've seen to be successful after that conference. So it wasn't just more fluffy stuff. It's really actionable, really deep content that you can take and apply to your own author career. So I really hope you'll come join us. Awesome. And thank you for the kind words on that. So we, uh, we were very glad to have you there and stoked to have you back this year. So, but uh, awesome, Dana. Well, thank you again for coming off me and I'll talk to you later. Thanks for your time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Creator Dad Podcast. To make sure you never miss an episode, hit that subscribe button on your podcast app and consider leaving a review on the show while you're there. And if you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to tell another creative friend about it. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week with a new episode.